This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Next on Plains FM, we feature a talk by the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, who spoke recently at the Network Waitangi Otautahi AGM. His topic? Refreshing Human Rights for Our Times, the role of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Good evening, everybody. Tuia te rangi etunei, tuia te papa etakotonei, Tuia te miro tangata, tenakato katoa, uh, talofa lava, salam alaikum, namaste, shalom, and good evening, good evening to you all. I just want to very briefly, um, but most sincerely, acknowledge Dr. Te Maire. Mana Fenua, Tangata Fenua. I want to acknowledge the network organizing group dominated by Catherine's. Um, Catherine Pete, Annie Gordon, Kathy Duncan, John Pete, Catherine Wilson. I think another one's just been appointed, is that right? So I want to acknowledge all of the organizing committee and uh, all members of the network. And I want to really very sincerely applaud you for the super important work that the network is doing in these times. Um, Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you this evening. Um, I want to put some thoughts for you on the the table, um, invite your comments, Uh, I hope engender some discussion, if not tonight, I hope tonight, but if certainly not only tonight, I hope discussion in forthcoming meetings that you will have. My my remarks are not uh, neatly scripted, not at all, they're very informal. Um, And if our chair permits, um, I don't mind being interrupted as I go. If you disagree, you're at liberty to say so. If I'm not clear, you're at liberty to say so. Um, I don't want to take up a lot of time doing this, but I, I would just like to briefly make some personal introductory remarks about myself, if that's okay. Um, I'll do it as briefly as I, as I can. Uh, I, I was born in, in Germany and lived in Germany for some years as a boy. Uh, but I'm not German, and most of my education, most of it took place in the United Kingdom, in England. Uh, My education was finished at the University of Waikato, uh, at the law school at the University of Waikato, Um, and I I taught at the University of Waikato for some years, some years ago, in the last century. I, my, f- my family grew up, my children grew up in, in the Waikato. One of them was born in the Waikato. Um, and uh, my wife and I and children, we returned to Europe for some years. 
um, when I had the opportunity to, to, uh, to take a, a chair at the University of Essex, a chair in international human rights law, and to undertake some work in the United Nations, some human rights work in the United Nations. So I, I worked for a spell looking at human rights in, in Northern Ireland, um, for a spell sometime living and working in Israel-Palestine, sometime living and working in West Africa, in the Gambia, working with an African uh, human rights uh, organization. And uh, my wife and I were keen to, to live and work in, in uh, Aotearoa, and we were pleased to have that opportunity. Uh, I was encouraged to apply for the position of Chief Human Rights Commissioner. As I said over dinner before we came in here, I didn't think I would be appointed. I thought they would appoint someone like Sean Fitzpatrick or Michael Jones or someone like that. Uh, but in a moment of weakness, they appointed me. And uh, I was very pleased uh, to be able to return to Aotearoa, where we'd been, we'd been having yearly visits back to Aotearoa to stay connected and to remain engaged with our extended whānau here. But it's really, really good to be back. The main point that I'd like to explore with you tonight is, is this one, that in the 20th century, uh, one of the great achievements was the emergence of international human rights. And this emergence of international human rights, um, flawed though it is, this emergence of international human rights uh, contributed to the post-1945 decolonization movement. The emergence of international human rights contributed to the women's movement. The emergence of international human rights in the last century contributed to, for instance, the civil rights movement in the United States. It contributed to the emergence of the rainbow community, pride community movement, and so on. The emergence of international human rights did make, has made, continues to make uh, a contribution to these progressive movements. And the work is, of course, not done. But having said that, the international human rights, as presently understood, has significant weaknesses. And it's sort of my argument that in New Zealand, some of these serious weaknesses can be redressed by Te Tiriti o Waitangi. 
And it seems to me that there's a, a deep complementarity between international human rights and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. And one of, the, one of the sections of the Human Rights Act, which is the act that governs the Human Rights Commission, one of the sections in the Human Rights Act says that one of the jobs of the Human Rights Commission is to explore the relationship between international human rights and Te Tiriti. And that's what we're endeavouring to do, falteringly, sometimes two steps back, one step back, but that's what we're trying to do in the Human Rights Commission to explore what I see as the complementary relationship between Te Tiriti and human rights. I would like to make a few remarks about the Human Rights Commission uh, before I get on to my main uh, argument that human rights and Tateriti complement each other. Before I get on to that, just a few remarks about the Human Rights Commission. Since my appointment in 2019, um, the Human Rights Commission has uh, embraced a holistic vision of human rights, by which I mean civil rights, political rights, workers' rights, social rights, cultural rights, the right to a safe environment, and indigenous people's rights. I'll come back to that theme in a moment. The Human Rights Commission also, since 2019, when I arrived, has made a commitment to, sorry for the jargon, to operationalize human rights to make human rights practical, granular, real for communities. Human rights are often the domain of people like me, lawyers, uh, policy wonks like me, but the idea in the Human Rights Commission is that we should find ways to take human rights outside of the Wellington bubble, outside of Lampton Quay, outside of the law courts, and that we should, we should make human rights meaningful to communities. Meaningful to the everyday lives of everybody. To make human rights not just something for the lawyers, but something for the educationalists, something for the economists, something for the environmentalists, something for the economists, and so forth and so on. So not just seeing human rights as something that you go to court over, but something that can empower people and dignify communities. That's, what, that's the journey we've embarked on. And I don't wish to imply that my predecessors didn't do that. They endeavoured to do that. And in a way, uh, the current Human Rights Commission, we are, we are learning from their successes and their shortcomings, and we're trying to build on their work. But there is a renewed commitment to have this big vision of human rights 
and to try and make them meaningful to everybody. To try to ensure that they dignify people and empower communities. Very briefly, we have five major programmes. I'll be brief, don't worry. Five major programmes in the Human Rights Commission. One is about poverty and human rights. Poverty is a human rights issue. Poverty is a human rights issue. So we're looking at poverty through the lens of human rights. That's one programme. A second programme, how to popularise human rights. How to actually take it outside of the Wellington bubble so that it's meaningful here in your communities and elsewhere. So our second programme is how to popularise human rights. The third programme is about belonging and human rights, about equality and human rights, about non-discrimination and human rights, about making human rights, uh, advancing, uh, tackling uh, discrimination discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of gender, on the base, basis of, of uh, sexuality uh, and other prohibited grounds of discrimination. So that's another programme of ours. And a key element of that programme is, is work on uh, discrimination against uh, eth, uh, racial discrimination and, dis, dis, uh, and discrimination against uh, disabled people but there are other grounds too so one is poverty and human rights another is popularizing human rights another is dealing with discrimination and human rights in its various forms another is combating violence and human rights violence against disabled people in particular women uh, in particular uh, and older people in particular but underpinning all of that is our TBO journey, our journey to become a Teiturite-based organisation. We're really seriously <laughs> trying hard to honour Teiturite, to integrate it into our work, to change how we work. And we make slips. <laughs> we, make, we make errors. But we are all all of the team. The four commissioners who I'll come back to in a moment, we're committed to honouring Teiteriti o Waitangi. I should say that just a few weeks after my appointment, there was the 15th of March 2019, and my work was uh, engulfed by the response to the 15th of March, and I spent a lot of time here in your communities and we engaged closely with the Royal Commission of Inquiry on the 15th of March and we're now trying to play our part in rolling out the, uh, the inquiry report. And there's one really important volume in that Royal Commission of Inquiry report on the 15th of March, it's volume four and it's about social cohesion. It's about social cohesion and perhaps that's a talk for another time. I'd just like to mention that within the, within the Human Rights Commission, there are four commissioners. Uh, there's Paula Tessiorero, the Disability Rights Commissioner. There's Meng Foon, the Race Relations uh, Commissioner. Uh, there's uh, um, 
my colleague, the Equal Employment Opportunities uh, Commissioner, uh, Karenina Sumeo, and uh, I'm the, the Chief Commissioner, the Fourth Commissioner. I'm, I articulate this for a number of reasons. One is that in the Act, the Human Rights Act, there's an empty seat. They could appoint, they being the government, could appoint another commissioner, and they've declined to do so. And I'm making a lot of noise at the moment, urging government to appoint a fifth commissioner for indigenous people's rights. Mm -hmm. Frankly, colleagues, I'm embarrassed mm -hmm. that, we, that I do not have on my board, I chair the board of the Human Rights Commission, I do not have on my board a single representative of Tangata Whenua. And that's not actually of my making. That is a responsibility of government. And uh, I don't have an Indigenous Peoples' Rights Commissioner. And it's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. And I'm making myself very unpopular at the moment in the corridors of power, complaining about this serious uh, shortcoming. To close these introductory remarks, I just want to say that something, I've been looking for something to try to capture how we're trying to do things differently in the Human Rights Commission. And I've come up with the three R's. We had the three P's, we have the three R's. So here they are on my chest. Human rights are about relationships. Human rights are about responsibilities and human rights are about rights. The three R's. I explained this to a cabinet minister recently and she said, but you've missed out on R. And I said, what is that? And she said, restorative justice. And she's absolutely right, but my chest isn't sufficiently big <laughs> to get it all on. So the three R's, it's a way, it's a sort of, a, a, a sort of banner headline way to try to convey what we're trying to do in the Human Rights Commission is to focus on the imperative of building constructive relationships between individuals and communities. Between also looking at responsibilities, not just responsibilities of the state, but responsibilities of all of us to each other and to our communities. And also the Human Rights Commission is about rights, is about some entitlements so that we can all live a dignified life. Let me turn now to the, uh, the, the sort of substance of my short, my short argument. And to remind you, it's this idea that international human rights, as I see it, international human rights has been a significant historic achievement in the last hundred years, but it has weaknesses. Some of those weaknesses can be redressed by a proper honouring of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. International human rights, I'll be brief, international human rights in its present form sort of emerged after the Second World War. It emerged after 1945. And the, the foundation of international human rights is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's an extraordinary document. It's an extraordinary document. And I want to mention one feature of it. That Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a response to fascism, but it was also a response to the causes of fascism. 
namely a sense of injustice and discrimination and poverty, which is a fertile ground for authoritarianism. So the drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were trying to create something which was a response to authoritarianism, the Holocaust, but it was also a response to the causes of authoritarianism. And that's what led them in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It led them to embrace this holistic vision of human rights, civil rights, political rights, workers' rights, social rights, cultural rights. It had this really enriching, holistic vision of human rights, which I'll come back to. There's another feature of this new international human rights that emerged after 1945. For reasons we can understand, we can relate to, this international vision of human rights was really suspicious of collectives. It was really suspicious of collectives. The drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were worried about collectives. They were worried about the collective of the fatherland, which had been used by the Third Reich. The drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were worried about another collective, the masses, the proletariat in the USSR. Because the drafters of the Universal Declaration, Declaration of Human mm -hmm. Rights knew through bitter experience they just lived through that collectives can be, they needn't be, but they can be deeply oppressive. They can lead to the Holocaust and six million murders. They can lead to the Gulag Archipelago. Do you remember that phrase, the Gulag Archipelago? This is the archipelago of prison camps in the wastes of northern Soviet Union. So the drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had an understandable suspicion of collectives. The third thing is related that I want to third point I wish to make about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a related point. Be the drafters wanted a code of conduct to regulate state power. That's what they were really looking for. They didn't use those terms, but really that's what they were looking for. They were looking for an international code of conduct to regulate state power because they'd seen how horrendous Mussolini had been, how horrendous Hitler had been. They knew they knew some of the terrible things that were happening under Stalin in the Soviet Union. So the international human rights was designed to regulate state power. And therefore it mainly placed duties on governments to behave themselves. Governments not to discriminate. Governments not to torture. Governments not to close down newspapers. Governments not to demolish mosques, etc. That's what it was designed to do. Now, I just want to make some contrasts between those visions for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and what's happened in Aotearoa since 1948. And I have to say, New Zealand has an honourable record in drafting international instruments. 
not just Teiteriti, but other international instruments. It was one of the architects of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The New Zealand government, they went with a delegation to international conferences for in, in, uh, in, in San Francisco and then more in Paris, and they came up with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's, it, has the, it has some of the values that are recognized in New Zealand in it. And that's partly because Kiwis helped to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Okay. Remember, one of the features of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was this holistic vision, all human rights, civil, political, economic, social, cultural rights. Has this happened in New Zealand? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Here we have the, the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, which is a really important statute, but it's not about civil, political, economic, social, cultural rights. It's about one sliver of that. It's about civil and political rights. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking it. Those protections of civil and political rights are really, really important. But New Zealand does not recognise social rights. It does not recognise, as it should, uh, cultural rights. It doesn't recognise, as it should, the right to a safe, healthy, clean environment. It doesn't do as well as it should to recognize indigenous people's rights. So that holistic vision that was there in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has been amplified later on, it hasn't been reflected in Aotearoa. And I often tease officials by saying, you guys, you do a fantastic job in New York, in the United Nations, and Geneva in the United Nations. And you talk about the whole, the whole prism of human rights. In, in New York and in Geneva, they do. They do a good job talking these rights up over there. And then I say to them, but something happens somewhere over the Pacific. <laughs> and you appear to have a severe attack of amnesia. And by the time the aeroplane rolls into Wellington, a large part of that spectrum of human rights has been erased from their minds. And here they talk about primarily civil and political rights. Very rarely, very rarely do you hear anyone in New Zealand talk about the right to a decent home. But it is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Successive New Zealand governments have, have undertaken internationally legally binding obligations to do all they reasonably can to ensure everyone has the right to a decent home. But has anyone heard about it here? Not really. So my point is that in international human rights law, there is this holistic vision of human rights, but we've lost sight of it in Aotearoa. Now, one of the other features of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that I mentioned was this suspicion, justifiable suspicion, of collectives. And I explained, you know, there are good reasons why the drafters of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were suspicious of collectives, because collectives have just, had just done some terrible things. But humans are social creatures. We live and work in collectives. And if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 
and subsequent human rights work, there are, there is a recognition of collectives, but it's downplayed, it's muted. So in international human rights, we do have the right to self-determination. That's a collective right. We do have in international human rights the right to development. That's a collective right. We do have, buried away a bit, the right to a safe and healthy environment. That's a collective right. We do have the right to health protection. That's a collective right. We do have rights for minorities, and minorities tend to practice their cultures collectively. And there is, of course, the document that Catherine has mentioned, UNDRIP, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is chock full of collective rights. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the international human rights that emerged in the 20th century is suspicious of collectives, but if you look closely, they're there. But they're muted, they're played down, and you don't find them in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act. Then the last feature that I tried to emphasize was that international human rights are about, they're about a code of conduct on state power. But in this day and age, this day and age, it's not just states that wield huge power. You know, Google wields huge power. <laughs> Facebook wields huge power. Corporations wield huge power. So the human rights were designed to capture, regulate state power for historical reasons. But really what human rights are about are a code of conduct for those who hold power, whether they're in government or whether they're in a corporation or somewhere else. It doesn't mean that corporations are going to be stopped from doing their work. It just means there's a code of conduct, a human rights code of conduct for them. And look, when you look more closely at the international human rights, you do see, you do see there are now steps to ensure that human rights doesn't just extend to states, but extends to non-state bodies as well. And I can give you examples of that uh, if there's time and if you're interested. I suppose I would just only make this point. In the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the one of the most important articles is the penultimate article, which talks about not the duties of states. It actually explicitly talks about the duty of individuals to their community. Aha. Uh -huh. So there, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is the germ of the idea that individuals have duties to their community. But you don't hear much of that spoken about in, in, in international human rights circles, but it is there. Look, a caution, I have to make a caution. And that is that if you talk about individuals having duties, it is dangerous if there is deep systemic structural discrimination against some individuals. If a society systemically discriminates against some individuals and then you layer on top of those individuals a duty to their community that runs the risk runs the risk of deepening their disadvantage so i'm in favor of recognizing recognizing the duties of individuals to communities but it needs to be handled with care because it can be used it can be used to entrench existing disadvantage of some communities and some individuals.
So in my, in my opinion, and Catherine, you have challenged me on this on, in other, on other occasions. Look, in my opinion, it, human rights have to strike a suitable balance between collective and individual. A suitable balance has to be struck. The word balance is the most important word in, in, in human rights. Balances have to be struck. And, um, and in order to make sure the balances are struck between collective and individual in an appropriate way, there needs to be independent mechanisms of accountability to make sure that collectives don't persecute individuals, that rather to make sure that the appropriate balances are maintained. And interestingly, you know, COVID-19 was a disaster for the world and it was really bad news for Aotearoa. But some positive things did come out of COVID-19 and one was, in my view, the community-led checkpoints up in Northland, <laughs> right? And there you had iwi, civil defence, uh, the police affirming the importance of community-led checkpoints and that was an exercise in balancing collective rights and individual rights. It was an exercise in balancing the right of the individual to go and travel and the right of the collective to be protected, to have their health protected. So Aotearoa can do this. It can strike the right balances between individual and uh, collective. So let me begin to close my remarks by saying something about Teteriti. And there are others in the room who are more expert and better placed than I am to talk about Teteriti. But I just humbly make these observations. Buried within Teteriti o Aitangi is a holistic vision of human rights. It's not just about civil and political rights, like the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act. It's got a broad vision of human rights. It's, it's encompassing civil, political, workers' rights, social rights, cultural rights, the right to a safe environment, and indigenous people's rights. So here you've got Teteriti able to help, uh, to help reinforce these import, this important feature of international human rights, the holistic vision, which we have lost sight of. With the help of Teteriti, we can reclaim that, that holistic vision of human rights. The second point is this, as I try to convey, as I try to convey, international human rights is suspicion of collectives, right? And for good reason. And then I pointed out that actually buried within international human rights, there is recognition of collectives. So the germ is there. Well, look at Teteriti. It's an instrument which honors and recognizes collectives. Whanau, Harpu, Iwi, the treaty's not scared or suspicious of collectives. It's about collectives and individuals. So here, this feature of Teteritio Waitangi, it can, it seems to me, reinforce this important dimension of international human rights where we've got to recognize collectives. We are social creatures, but the collectives have to be balanced suitably with the individual. And Teteriti it seems to me, can help us strike that balance. And the third feature that I mentioned about the international human rights system, where there's some weakness, is international human rights has been, for historical reasons, it's been crafted to hold government to account because Mussolini did terrible things, Hitler did terrible things, 
the Soviets were doing terrible things. Government was doing bad things. So it was designed, international human rights, as I explained, it was designed to hold states accountable, to place obligations on states. But these days, as I explained, these days other entities have, have responsibilities. And Teitariti recognizes that. It's not just the state that has responsibilities in Teitariti, it's others as well. And not just those, not just those living today. <laughs> you know, Te Ao Māori has an understanding of ancestors and the current generation and future generations and all have to be honoured. And that, it seems to me, that concept, that idea can, can inform and reinforce and strengthen international human rights. And Māori have a deep elemental connection with the environment. And international human rights does have that to a degree, but it's underdeveloped. And with Teitariti, we can deepen that. So my point is that the international human rights system, I think it's seriously, I think when historians look back on the 20th century, they'll see the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as one of the most historic documents of the 20th century, but it has weaknesses. It has weaknesses, and I've tried to introduce you to some of the weaknesses, and my point is that Teitariti or Waitangi can help make up for some of those weaknesses. Teitariti or Waitangi can help to redress some of those weaknesses. And the values, it seems to me, the values that recur throughout human rights chime with Te Ao Māori. The values are not dissimilar between, if I may humbly suggest, those underpinning and informing and shaping Te Tiriti and those values that are informing and shaping human rights. Values such as caring for people you don't know. Caring for people you don't know. Dignity of everyone. Treating people decently. Being fair. Equality. The value of belonging. Responsibility. Participation. Others in the room will correct me, but it seems to me, my understanding of Te Ao Māori, my understanding of Te Tiriti, that those are some of, not all of, some of the values that are embodied in Te Tiriti. They're certainly, I can speak with more confidence about this, they're certainly values that embody international human rights. So, as I see it, international human rights was a great advance, but it had and it has its weaknesses, and Teitariti o Waitangi, if we take it seriously, if we take it seriously, 
and we listen to mana whenua and tangata whenua, it seems to me that teitariti can help to redress the weaknesses in contemporary human rights as recognized here in Aotearoa. Māori ki te rangi, ora ki te whenua, Māori ora ki a katoa. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, who spoke recently at the network Waitangi Otautahi AGM, which took place at the Canterbury Workers' Education Association 